שידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשירס. כל רמה, 102.3 FM. Welcome everybody to another edition of Parsha Talk. I am Rabbi Barry Chesler of the Schechter School of Long Island. And with me in the studio today is Rabbi Scott Bolton of Congregation Orzarua on the east side of Manhattan. And Rabbi Aaron Schoenbrunn of Congregation Torad El in Deal, New Jersey. Our Parsha this week is Parshat Korach, the scene of one of the great rebellions in, biblical, in, the, in the Bible and Jewish history. And it's good to begin right away with the very first verse of the Parsha. Vaikach Korach at Yitzhar ben Yitzhar ben Kachat, v'datan v'aviram, b'nei Eliyah v'yon ben Pelet b'nei Ruvain. And the question that has perplexed the commentators is what exactly did Korach take? We generally read the verse and Korach took. The continuation of the verse suggests that Datan and Aviram are what Korach took. However, the Parshanim, the medieval commentators following rabbinic commentators from an earlier period, see different things that Korach might have, take, might have taken. One of the classic ones, of course, is Rashi's commentary, in which he suggests that, reading along with Unklus, that he took himself to one side to be opposite the entire Edah in order to protest against the Kahuna, the priesthood, which is vested in Aharon, the brother of Moshe. This particular reading has always reminded me of the reading of Avram Ha'ivri in um, Parsha Lech Lecha, where Ivri is understood by some of the rabbis in the Midrash to be Avraham took himself to the other side against mm-hmm. everyone else. We, in our tradition, accord Avraham the honor of the first monotheist, but it raises a question for us, especially in 2019, when leadership, both national and international, is on our minds constantly, is what makes a good leader? Is it the person like Korach, who separates himself from the community, or the person like Avraham, who apparently does the same thing, but has a very different result? Rabbi Bolton? Uh, the the uh, power of the first verb is definitely the, the question maker, right? Because we're expecting, what is he taking? Like you said. Uh, so l- let me go a different direction that Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch brings forward. And he says this very verb, there's a hint in that verb as to what he's really taking. What he's really taking is he's, quote-unquote, taken with himself. He's actually so taken with himself that he thinks uh, Aaron doesn't have the right to be the priest, and Moshe, you don't have the right to be the point leader. And really, the hint uh, that, he, that he sees is in the root, Lamed Kuf Chet, which is Lakach, that he also notices in the story that's unfolding in... Uh, King David's time, about Avshalom, who launches a rebellion against King David. And also he notices that that verb is used, L'kicha, Avshalom took himself. 
and he uh, even makes of himself a king in place of the other ruler, obviously not the one designated by God. But how do we really know, further, Rabbi Hirsch asks us, that he is really indicating a certain kind of egoism and a certain kind of wish for personal gain. It's not just from Vaikach. It actually comes out at the end of verse 3, he asks, Umadua titnasu al-kahal Adonai. He asks that to Moses. Hirsch notices in that challenge, titnasu, the hitpa'el form of the verb, that he says to Moses, hey, why did you make yourself the leader of this whole Ada? It should be me. And he denies then the existence of a divine right of leadership to Moses. So there's a big question in all this as to how much he's not only rejecting Moses and Aaron, but he's rejecting God. And what generally the entire Kehillah believes is God's choice for leadership. Because back at Sinai, the story that I'm reminded of, back at Sinai, they all said, hey, Moses, you go up there and get the law. You be our Natsig. You be our representative. And here, uh, he's really challenging both Moses and Aaron on the human level, but God on the divine level. So taking off of that and your, and your question about Abraham... You know, we're spending a lot of time in camp talking about, right now, community. We're teaching all the kids about community. Uh, we're studying a little bit of Talmud together, all of us educators, about what does it mean to be a leader and what role leaders play, the high priest, the king, etc. And the question when I think about Abraham versus Korach is, if we want to read that they both took themselves somehow and placed themselves separately... The question is, is that always bad? So Hillel famously said, you shouldn't separate yourself from the community. Being in a community is valuable. We know this in many ways in Judaism. On the other side of it, uh, leaders sometimes need to separate themselves to lead while bringing other people along, while inspiring other people, etc. Sometimes being separate is not necessarily a bad thing. The question I think that we have to ask is, and, and Rabbi Bolton was talking about this also, what, for what purpose are we separating ourselves, right? Abraham, it could be argued, separated himself to start an entirely new religion, and he was Me'ever, and he became the founder of monotheism, etc. If we take the rabbis reading in Hirsch and the medieval, everybody else of Korach, it seems that Korach, at least it's plausible, that Korach separated himself to just make himself look bigger. It was personal all about gain. his own ego and personal gain. So the question to think about when we're talking about community at camp when we're talking about what it means to be a leader, is when you separate yourself, for what purpose are you separating yourself? Are you separating yourself for a holy, sacred, good, positive, transformational purpose? Or are you separating yourself uh, out of a place of arrogance and ego uh, and not helpful to a whole community as a whole? Perhaps there's a suggestion of impurity in Korach's claim from the very beginning. Because his claim is that he too is a Levite, which is a genealogical claim. In other words, he is part of the same family in the broader sense as Moshe and Aharon, and he wants his fair share. But had he been from another tribe, he would have no claim at all. And here it's worth reminding ourselves that Datan and Aviram and On Ben Pellet were from the tribe of Ruvain, another tribe that was uh, disaffected in part because their genealogical claim to leadership was rejected as well. So if we could move on just a moment to the punishment of Korach. 
Korach is swallowed up by the earth, and two points here might be made. Point number one, which we did not have a chance to discuss when we were preparing, is that Korach is not unlike the Cherem, the object that is totally dedicated to God. And it's curious, given your reading of it, Aaron, that um, if we see Korach as a Cherem, then someone who stepped away from God is now totally devoted to God by being completely destroyed. The second thing we might note is that in the reading in the Torah, it suggests pretty clearly that the mouth that swallows up Korach and his family is a new creation. Professor Jacob Milgram in his commentary has a slightly different reading, but nevertheless, the Peshat for most of us seems to be that the earth was opened up by Moses' request and swallowed Korach and his family. Mm-hmm. And in Mishnah Avot, which we read between Pesach and Shavuot, and some people continue to read until Rosh Hashanah, there is this striking Mishnah in the fifth chapter mm-hmm. where there are ten things that the rabbis say are created on the dusk, the twilight of the sixth day. All things that we would consider to be miracles, but all things that the rabbis want to see as part of the natural order, and the best they could do is to say that they were created at the beginning to be called upon when the time was right. But how do we understand this mouth that swallows up Korach? We were learning in Hevruta, that means together, we were studying Torah, thinking about what the verses say, we were reading them aloud and exchanging ideas and talking about the commentaries. And sometimes in the discussions we have, something pops out at you in a verse that you've never seen before or that you remember, oh, maybe one time someone hinted to you that something interesting was going on and something really interesting is going on about this mouth that the rabbis say was created by God at the dusk of the first Friday night, right the, right before the first Shabbat. Right yeah. before they gathered in the amphitheater. <laughs> That's right. You know, it was before a couple of Shabbat. And my, where is the root of this kind of different take? This is my daughter's bat mitzvah parsha. And I'm now me. remembering the first time that I had this insight about verse 29, 30, 31 in the Parsha about the mouth that opens up, that it wasn't, according to the shot, the simple sense of the text, it wasn't God at all that had the idea about this mouth. Who was it? It was Moses. Not a most humble Moses, but a pretty angry Moses, who says in verse 29, Im kamot kol adam yamutun ele. If these people die a regular death, a normal death, no one's going to believe that I am really a servant of God. So what does he do? He challenges God. How does he challenge God? He envisions a very, very public and tragic and pretty violent death for Korach and his followers. Verse 30. If we'll send these people down to Sha'ol, the Jewish version of a, of a hell, we can get into what exactly Sha'ol is at another time, but let the earth swallow them up by a mouth opening wide in the very, very terrain upon which they stand. And then what? Verse 31. 
after Moses finishes speaking, in other words, all this idea that he has, they shouldn't die a normal death, but one that is really incredible with a new kind of creation in the world that God should show that Moshe is in control through Moses' idea of a tibakaha adama asher tachtehem. The earth opens up and swallows them whole. Moses' idea at that moment versus the Mishnah that claimed that it was one of those things created before the first Sabbath. How do we... Do we have to even make a reconciliation between those two sources, or can they both stand as separate ideas? Well, and I think what we're, when we were studying this together uh, just a few moments ago, the question that I had is, you know, what's really going on with Moshe here? Because from the very beginning, you have, you have this challenge to leadership. Moshe tries to sort of calm everybody down. They don't want to have any of it. They're not coming to him. They're not talking. And then I think one could argue that as we read through a little bit, understandably perhaps, Moses is angry. You know, why are they challenging me? I'm doing all this stuff for the people. Haven't I been through enough? And we can imagine, you know, patience running out, right? And so if we take your read and we look at it closely and we say, well, Moshe really wanted this to happen. If we're looking at the shot that Moshe, you know, the contextual reading, that Moshe wanted the ground to open up and, and enough of this problem already, uh, you know, I think it raises questions about what happens when even great and humble leaders, which Moshe has just called last week, right, the most humblest of leaders, uh, lose their cool, right? And I always like that the Torah includes uh, leaders with problems uh, as well as, you know, positives, because we can learn from this that um, sometimes it can be hard to be humble, Sometimes patience can run out. Sometimes we can feel like we want to open up the ground and let the problem go away. That can certainly happen in camp uh, with a whole myriad of problems. And how do we, uh, you know, appeal to the higher part of ourselves that uh, encourage us, encourages us to go right back to the midot, the attributes that we're trying to teach the kids, right, to be, um, to have anavat, to be humble, um, and not to let um, sort of our anger get out of control. Not that anger is always a bad thing. It's another discussion. But the rabbis have no problem with anger if it's used in its proper way and in a way to pursue good things and justice, etc. But it can be dangerous if, if it's out of control. So I was struck by your comment, Scott, with the emphasis on the mouth. Because a mouth does swallow up things. Mm-hmm. And what it swallows up here are Korach's words. Not just his body and his family, his words are swallowed up as if to remove them completely from B'nai Yisrael. I think part of the issue for us is that had we been with B'nai Yisrael, we might have found Korach's appeal, whether it's as it's portrayed in the Torah as the rabbis imagine it, to be quite seductive. It would have been convincing. He's not really coming from left field, I suppose, or even right field. He's right in the middle. And he has a seductive message, a message that appeals to a lot of people. And the question is, how does one actually combat that? It doesn't seem that humility would necessarily be an appropriate way, because Moses' great challenge is always to make sure that the people recognize that he is a leader. And over and over again, we see in the Torah that being the appointed of God 
it's not necessarily always good for the people. <laughs> right on. I mean, right at the beginning of the Shemot, right? He goes and helps a couple of brothers and they say, who are you to lord over us, right? right? I mean, this is already part of the, the Moses leadership story in, in its fullest, in its richest. So perhaps we might conclude that it's not always good to be humble and sometimes it's important to be angry, but maybe that's not the message we want to teach the campers this summer. Well, but I think that it's an important question of, of balance, right? With, with all of these traits, a lot of times it's about how do you have an even, how do you, how do you, operate, in, how do you operate in moderation, right? How do you have uh, humility when it's appropriate? Um, you know, it's, it go, it's the Hasidic story of the two pieces of paper, right? Uh, the world was created for my sake in one pocket and I am but dust and ashes in another, a balance between sort of humility and arrogance, or here we might say, you know, being humble, but also need to get things done, right? Um, well, so if we would follow that a little bit further, what do you actually think Moshe has those two pieces of paper in his pocket? And which is the one that he needs to grab for most? Does he need to remind himself that he is created in the image of God or that he's but dust and ashes? So now you're on the spot. Well, I think it might depend on what context he's uh, we're, we're dealing with here. So play it out, right? Um, in our story, you know, in our in our story, I would say um, he probably needs bishulim. For my sake, the world was created. In other words, he needs to get something done because he's got a big rebellion on his hands. I, I would agree with you with your take uh, that if he just says, "Well, um, I am but dust and ashes," he may disempower himself. Right. The question is. Um, when you use that power and that you know strength and that arrogance, how do you make sure that it doesn't get too far out of control? So part of the story involves fire pans, and which fire pans represent the authority of God? And the fire pans often remind me of the story of Nadav and Avihu in those three first verses of chapter ten of Sefer Vayikra, the book of Leviticus bring their fire pan with their Sarah into the Holy of Holies, and the fire goes out from God and kills them. Here we have 252 people with their fire pans, the 200, or 251, I suppose, the 250 who are rallied against Moshe and Aaron and Aaron himself. And here, too, there is a danger that the, the divine fire can get out of control, and it almost always has tragic consequences, whether it's for Nadav and Avihu, or for these people that come to oppose Aaron. Is there a way for us, in our language and in our day, to control the divine fire? Or is it something that we have to respond to however it flares up, and sometimes we're successful and sometimes we're not? I think that there could be a very meaningful way of answering the question for each and every individual that doesn't necessarily answer your question, Barry. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's <laughs> the, that, the beauty of radio. Right, that's the beauty of, of Chavrut as well. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful question, right? When it flares up inside me, when I feel that I'm so moved by God that I need to unleash a little holy anger or I need to get organized with a group, and there were 250 here. It wasn't just two. Like Nadav and Avihu were two. But 250 is a pretty big number in the Torah. And every individual comes with his own fire pan. 
Uh, it's not just there, there's not just one or two representative fire pans. This is about as much about every individual in that group as it was about the named leaders in, in that sense. When I really feel that, how do I temper it so that I don't get swallowed up? If that's the narrative's message, I think that is pretty much a definition of Ruchaniut in our tradition. What is Jewish spirituality? It's having fierce, fiery, ready, ready to go, holy anger. And knowing that you have, your soul has a place in the world and a job to do and you're going to make it happen. And somebody else, they are as equal as you are and so you're going to make that equality the fire of your soul. You're going to bring that equality into the world as Korach tried to do. And at the same time, you're going to listen to Moses' advice in the Parsha, which if Korach would have listened to, maybe a little bit, and continued his intellectual rebellion, because what's so interesting about Korach's rebellion is that it's ritualistic and it's intellectual. It's not with swords. It's not with an army. He doesn't make them into a band of killers. He brings ideas and he brings rituals that are going to help prove that we all have this power to be the nation of Kohanim, right? That Exodus said we should be. But what did he need to do? He needed to take Moses' advice that I think came when Moses says back in the beginning, towards the beginning, in the Boker, that they would know really who's to be the one to lead. Boker v'yodea. And what did that really invite Korach to do that he didn't do? Livakeret halev to visit the intentions of his heart, to visit the intentions that he first yelled about and, and, and brought his band along with and challenged Moses with at night. He could have slept on it and in the morning really worked something out with Moses. I wonder what it would have looked like if he had more than two verses in this Parsha of his own words. But Korach only has two verses in the whole Parsha where he has words. He doesn't then use words. He starts with words, but he doesn't continue. Right? And it's the power of Dibor. And Dibor, the power, Koach Dibor, the power of words is really the unique human gift. And Judaism is about that internal visiting, uh, taking a cheshbon and nefesh, rethinking ideas, and then using words to really work it out in an intellectual way in the world with the people who, think, who you think even challenge you in the greatest sense. So there's a lot to think about in what you just said. I'm gonna take. I'm gonna also turn a little for, from your question, but but uh, think about these uh, pans, because I was I was remembering. Uh, I'm not. I don't remember who said it or where it comes from, but I remember that everything swallowed up. Korach swallowed. Everybody swallowed up. Even even the rachush. Even if stuff is swallowed up, except then something very interesting happens, right? God says to Moshe, "Tell Elazar." Ben Aaron, right, the priest, to take away these machto, uh, take away the fire pans, right? Because what's happened? Kikadeshu. And all of a sudden now they're holy. So these fire pans that have been used for this whole, you know, purpose and, 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 and dueling ideas, and they don't get swallowed up, right? They offered from these fire pans and the fire pans remain. So why is it that the fire pans that are used in this whole um, you know, challenge to Moshe, all of a sudden are now sacred objects. And part of what I think about here is, you know, the importance of memory. 
that, and I don't remember who said this, so I apologize, but that keeping the fire pans is a reminder of all that happened, right? We can argue what was good, what was bad, what, what might Korach have done, what, but having the fire pans there precisely allows for that, you know, conversation, thought, discussion, you know, memory, because you can never, we always need to learn from what happened before. We don't ever want to forget. So for me, the fire pans are a bit of a symbol of that also. And the fire pans are concrete, unlike words, which sometimes fade away from our memory. If I could just come back to the verses that you cited at near the beginning, Scott, about Moses ordering God to behave in a certain way. Another way perhaps to read it is that Moses offers a choice. That Moses doesn't say God is going to do this. He says if this happens, it will mean one thing. If that happens, it will mean something else. That perhaps is the source and the expression of Moses' humility. He doesn't tell God what God must do. He says this is what it will mean if God does this or if God does that. Korach seems to speak from a position of certainty. He knows everything. And this goes back to your comment, about Scott, about inspecting his heart in the evening before that morning, is that we can imagine that he has no need to inspect his heart because he knows and he always knows that he is correct. With that, we'll conclude this edition of Parsha Talk for Rabbi Scott Bolton and Rabbi Aaron Schoengren. I am Rabbi Barry Chesler. You've been listening to Paul Ramah, 102.3 FM, in the vicinity of Camp Ramah in the Berkshires. We're on podcast at www.paulramah.us. For all of us, Shabbat Shalom. שידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשירס כל רמה 102.3 FM